Welcome to Do We Know Things, a podcast where we examine things we think we know about sex. Content warning. This podcast will include discussions related to sexual assault and childhood sexual abuse. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Lisa Don Hamilton, professor of psychology and sex educator. Today on Do We Know Things, how the criminal justice system fails survivors of sexual assault, along with most everyone else. Often, when someone is victimized in some way, we hear cries for justice. In some cases, and for some people, the legal system will work for them. For many, many people, however, the criminal justice system does not feel just at all. This is very apparent right now as we're seeing massive protests against police brutality across the United States and the world. Police brutality is only the tip of the iceberg of how Black and Indigenous people are harmed by the legal system in the U.S., Canada, and other nations. While the problems with the system are pervasive and affect many people in negative ways, for this episode, I'm focusing specifically on survivors of sexual assault and abuse. This is the third episode in a three-part series on sexual assault. The way the legal system is designed absolutely does not work for survivors. Dealing with the police and lawyers can be a traumatizing nightmare. Even if the person who committed the assault is punished in some way through the legal system, to me, it doesn't feel like justice if everyone is re-harmed during the process. On today's episode, I want to talk about the problems with dealing with sexual assault in the current legal system, talk about alternatives through restorative justice, and think about what justice actually is. I'm joined by restorative justice educator David Castro-Harris from Amplify RJ and Mia Hunt, a circle keeper with Hidden Water NYC. That's coming up on Do We Know Things. But first, before I get to my first interview on restorative justice, I want to talk about what is wrong with the current system for dealing with sexual assault. I don't remember a time when I didn't think that reporting sexual assault to the police was a bad idea. It feels like that knowledge has always just been there. However, there was one particular time when someone close to me went to the police after an assault, and I got to witness firsthand how horrible she was treated by the police. She was a student in high school. Not only did the police tell her she had a, quote, bad reputation based on interviews with other girls at her school— they called her parents to tell them she was an alcoholic, which was completely false, and they called her school to say that she shouldn't be in any leadership positions. The police also referred her to counseling, and the first thing the police-provided counselor said to her was, so you are here because you lied. My friend walked out of the room immediately. This is just one example, but there are thousands more like this where the initial harm of assault or abuse is exacerbated by the legal system. In 2017, Robin Doolittle published a series in the Globe and Mail called Unfounded. In this rigorously researched piece of journalism, she provided clear confirmation of what I and others had witnessed and known. Doolittle determined that, on average, one in five sexual assault complaints were classified as unfounded based on data that she was sent from various police departments across Canada. The unfounded classifications indicates the officer felt the complaint was baseless. Doolittle points out that there are other codes for things like not enough evidence or when the complainant does not want to go forward with their complaint. Coding a report of sexual assault as unfounded means the police do not think it's a real complaint. They think it is not true. Marking claims as unfounded is often based on victim behavior. 
If the victim doesn't behave in the way that police think a victim should, the claim was dismissed with little to no investigation. Doolittle also showed video evidence and discussed how people reporting sexual assault are questioned, which in some cases clearly showed police trying to shame the victim out of reporting, and in other cases, actively victim-blaming. There's a link to the first article of the Unfounded series in the show notes. There's a ton of data and more stories in the article itself. Sexual assault cases are difficult to prosecute anyway, since it's often a he-said-she-said situation with no witnesses. Even when there is clear evidence and witnesses, though, victims are questioned aggressively, attacked for their past behavior, and expected to remember every single detail of a traumatizing incident perfectly and consistently. And that is not how a traumatized brain works. Victims are criticized and disbelieved if they cannot tell a coherent narrative about what happened. They are also expected to remember everything that happened before, during, and after an assault. If they can't do that, or if they remember more information or different information at a later date, they are deemed to be lying. If they are not appropriately distressed, they are thought to be lying. If they are too upset and crying too much, they are assumed to be lying. The list goes on about what's expected of a victim. Trauma-informed approaches take into account what is actually happening in the body and the brain of someone during a traumatizing event. When we are in highly stressful situations, we, and other animals, go into fight, flight, or freeze mode. These nervous system responses act to help an animal survive. When there's an extreme stressor happening that kicks us into fight or flight, we go into a tunnel vision and become hyper-focused on the stressor. We do not pay attention to or encode into memory anything outside of what is needed for basic survival in that moment. The parts of our brain activated during fight or flight are not verbal, and the memories that get encoded are not done so in a linear fashion. An example I often use is when I give brief presentations at conferences, often I won't remember anything I've said afterwards because I'm in flight mode during that presentation. When I tell people this, they often laugh and commiserate with me about their own experiences. Never has someone told me I was lying. Another example is to imagine you're walking in the woods and suddenly you see a bear ahead of you, and you hear a bear rustling beside you. This is the type of thing that the fight-or-flight system has evolved to react to. Immediately, your heart will start racing and you'll do whatever you can to escape the bear. While running away, you are hyper-focused on looking for and listening for the bears. Now imagine after you've run to safety, someone asks you to then describe the location of the bear, what the bear looked like, what type of trees were around the bear, if there were flowers on the trees, what shade of green the leaves were. Then you're asked to explain the exact sequence of events that led you to getting to the bears and exactly what you did, what you said, and where you went when you were fleeing from the bears. You can't do it, and no one would ask you to. In freeze mode, we often shut down completely and dissociate, so we aren't even really present in the moment. Our brains are not processing or encoding anything, except maybe some sensations. Trauma-informed approaches understand this and don't expect people to behave or be able to explain themselves in any specific way. But the criminal legal system requires a coherent narrative, and it is hypercritical of those who cannot perform in a coherent way. In Robin Doolittle's new book, Had It Coming, she interviews a number of experts about trauma-informed approaches and summarizes the findings in easy-to-understand terms. You can also Google the neurobiology of trauma if you want to learn more. But even if the police are trauma-informed and treat the complainant well and believe her, and believe there's enough evidence to prosecute, 
Many survivors of sexual assault report that the process of going through the trial is re-traumatizing. They often have little agency or control over the process, which is governed by lawyers and judges. And this repeats the loss of agency they experienced during their assaults. A first-person account of this process was outlined in the book Know My Name by Chanel Miller. Miller is the woman who was assaulted by the so-called Stanford rapist, and her book details the hell she went through in the criminal legal system. In addition to the expectations put on victims to be perfect in their memories, she discusses how traumatizing it is to be on the stand and be personally attacked by a defense lawyer. The system is designed to be adversarial. Only one side can win, and they will do everything they can to win, regardless of consequences. So it's just more harm piling on to all involved. My point here is that the legal system is not working for survivors of sexual assault. There are alternative ways to justice, and today I want to talk about restorative justice. To introduce us to this concept, I brought in an expert. David Castro-Harris is the founder of Amplify RJ, a digital platform to share the philosophy, practices, and value of restorative justice. As part of this work, David does online workshops in restorative justice, and I saw recently that Amplify RJ has the goal of training a 1,000 educators this summer around restorative and racial justice. Although the organization is relatively new, the interest in the work has exploded. I took a two-hour intro to RJ workshop with David back in April and loved the interactive way David taught about RJ and quickly signed up for Next Level Learning. I'm grateful to have David here today to discuss restorative justice with us. Welcome, David. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Uh, I'd love if you could introduce yourself and the work that you do. So my name is David Ryan Barcega Castro Harris, all five names for the ancestors. Uh, I use he, him pronouns. I am a restorative justice educator among very many other things right now uh, as a founder of Amplify RJ. As Lisa Dawn says, we are in the throes of a crazy time in the world, right? Um, and restorative justice is what I believe to be part of the solution to um, creating a more equitable world for all of us. Can you give us an overview of what restorative justice is? The quote-unquote grandfather of restorative justice, Howard Zur, uh, wrote in 2007, like, if you ask 100 practitioners, you'll probably get like a thousand different answers, right? Because there's so many ways to describe the work. But for me, the definition that I've settled on is that restorative justice is a philosophy and set of practices rooted in indigenous teachings that emphasize our interconnection by repairing relationships when harm happens, but proactively building and maintaining relationships to prevent future harm. And how does RJ work differently from the traditional justice system that you have in the U.S.? Yeah, in general terms, the traditional or punitive criminal legal system, or just the way that people think about justice, we ask what rule or law was broken, who did it, and what uh, punishment do they deserve, right? Uh, with a restorative mindset, we're thinking more about the people involved and what they need. So we ask the questions, what happened? who is impacted and how, and what needs must be addressed in order for that to be made as right as possible. Definitely thinking more about the people's needs, acknowledging that both the person who caused harm has needs and the person who was harmed. And there are other people who are impacted by the situation that also have needs as well that need to be addressed. The criminal legal system uh, rarely, rarely addresses any of those needs. Absolutely. How did you come to this work of restorative justice? I had been working in an employment program, helping folks try to find work who are out of a job. And 
a lot of the people who were having the hardest time finding work were those that had records in the criminal legal system. And so I stopped asking the question, like, who are the quote unquote felon friendly employers, but also how did they end up in this situation in the first place, right? A lot of it was for drugs, either possession or uh, for selling um, or for using, right? And so the question started with like, okay, so like, why are we treating the drug crisis as uh, a criminal problem instead of a health problem? But like all that research led down to like, okay, the war on drugs leading to mass incarceration and then more research, like learning about the school to prison pipeline, the foster care to prison pipeline. I mean, along the way, the word restorative justice uh, came up. And so about the same time, I moved to Chicago to go to grad school. And in Chicago community, I learned about restorative justice practices and how they actually look like in community and practice using a circle process rooted in um, indigenous teachings, a circles uh, ceremony that we use to um, discuss hard issues. Yes, often resolve conflict, but it's also a time for community building and uh, peacemaking. Uh, and right, peacemaking can be proactive and uh, responsive to harm. Ora Shub uh, was the first person who taught me. The day that we're recording this is the day before the two-year anniversary of her transition. She passed two years ago. But uh, Cheryl Graves and uh, Pamela Purdy are continuing the work at Community Justice for Youth Institute down in Chicago. And uh, they've been a great teachers um, in the work for me. Of course, there have been many others. Uh, but along the way, I've done this work in the criminal legal system, Cook County Jail, and community organizations in Chicago. And then... Um, in the school settings as well in Chicago. And then I moved back out here to LA, started Amplify RJ. Awesome. One of the things I really like that you do in your sessions is you have people introduce themselves in seven different ways. Mm -hmm. How does that practice link to restorative justice? Yeah, uh, the exercise um, is, a, is a partner exercise where you're paired up with someone and they're asking you the question, who are you, seven times. Um, and you have to come up with seven different answers. Um, and part of it is just like a getting to know you, because uh, again, restorative justice is about building relationships. But uh, the other part is like, you know, the first relationship is you that you have is with yourself. And so like the introspection of who you are, how that affects you, how you show up in the world. Um, and knowing that restorative justice approaches are a part of all of that, right? Um, again, restorative justice being about relationships. So when I say like the response to my who are you questions like, okay, so like I'm a son, I'm a partner, I'm a brother. How does restorative justice like affect the way that I show up in all those roles? Um, I am a black man and I am a Filipino American, right? So how does that affect like how I show up in the world um, as it comes to like relating with other people who share my mix of racial identity, who share parts of my racial identity and who are like totally different from me, right? Um, and there are like all these things that are parts of ourselves. Like I share that, you know, um, I'm, I'm a heterosexual, cisgender, um, and, and I, there's privilege around that. So how do I show up as that? Um, how do I show up as a homeowner? How do I show up as someone who like is a really big fan of basketball, right? <laughs> uh, like the, it's like, how are we like spending our time? How are we spending our money? And how are we just interacting with people? How are we building and maintaining relationships in the different roles that we have? Like I'm an x-ray tech as well, right? So like when I show up in, uh, in a patient's room, how am I interacting with them? How am I interacting with my colleagues, the nurses, like all the people that I interact with, like restorative justice is thinking about like building the relationships, acknowledging the humanity and the other, not treating people as disposable. Definitely. And um, one of the other things that you talk about in your workshops is how 
we've all at some point in our lives, probably multiple times, had harm done to us, mm -hmm. and then also multiple times probably have harmed others. Um, why is that important in a restorative justice framework? Yeah. So if we go back to thinking about the restorative questions of like, you know, what happened, who was impacted and how, and, um, you know, what needs must be addressed, right? Whenever harm happens, everybody involved is impacted some way, somehow. Um, oftentimes people who cause harm are doing it from a place where they have an unmet need. And so they're trying to meet that need and what, whatever action they take is causing harm to someone else. And so like their needs around that are like figuring out how to get that need met in like a healthy way that's not harmful for anyone, but also like the need to make things right, apologize, um, learn how to do better moving forward, get whatever support they need. In addition to like the person who was harmed, they still need like, not support, they need the harm to stop. They need to maybe rebuild trust with that person depending on the uh, situation or scenario. Um, or they need to get a sense that like, this harm won't happen to them again in the future. Um, so whatever it takes for them to feel more safe uh, moving forward. Um, so things like that, like people involved in any kind of harm have feelings and require need. I think like, one of the examples that I probably shared in your um, in your session was when I was in second grade, right? I was at recess and I the whistle blew because recess was over and I really wanted one more turn on the monkey bars, right? And so I went up there, uh, but my friend was in the way. So I pushed her and she fell and broke her leg. And so, of course, she had needs and feelings of like pain and like confusion and shock of like, why did my friend David like push me like this? And mm -hmm. my... And her needs were like, you know, to get support, to like have her leg fixed and like to rebuild like trust in our friendship. But my needs were similar, right? Like I was shocked. Like I didn't expect for her to like break her leg, right? I was scared for like what was going to happen to me. Um, mm -hmm. I was sad because I hurt my friend, right? But I also needed like as a seven-year-old who like just broke their friend's leg to one, be reassured that I'm not a bad person. I just made a, a mistake, a bad decision. Um, I need to learn to do better the next time. Like when the, re when the whistle blows recess, just go inside. Uh, but also <laughs> like, you know, don't push your friends. I also needed like to somehow make it up to her. I actually, when I started doing this work, um, I was reflecting on that story and I found this friend on Facebook and I was like, I don't remember what happened because I'm very clear that I didn't get in trouble. Oh, <laughs> um, <okay. laughs> but I, I don't remember like what happened. And she had said that like her parents um, were just like, oh, it's a kids will be kids thing. Mm -hmm. um, and my parents were like, you need to like help her like carry her books, do mm -hmm. like all do all these things to to help her out whatever she needs because you broke her leg, you're responsible for helping her. So apparently I did that. I don't remember right. it, but she does. And so like <laughs> I felt a lot better after hearing that, like in you know, seven-year-old fashion, somehow that was that was restored. That's wonderful to hear. The feelings and needs that children feel are the same as adults feel. Uh, when there's harm, right? They're just human feelings. They manifest differently and the needs are slightly different. Um, the way that people need to be supported are slightly different, but we can be talking about, you know, getting pushed off the monkey bars, right? Or um, things that are more serious, right? Um, mm -hmm. it, the, the feelings and needs um, are very similar. Yeah. And I love that you use this example that is just like kids making mistakes. Um, can you talk a bit about the tree model of restorative justice? Oh, man. I don't know if I can do this without the visual, but I'll try. Um, okay. I think when a lot of people think about restorative justice, they think about, you know, the harm um, 
that occurs and like how to repair that. And that's accurate. Um, like, you know, restorative justice, part of it is about repairing harm um, when it happens. And so uh, if we think about like just that restorative justice process, I use the metaphor of a tree because like, if we think about the restorative justice process as a branch, branches need to be supported by like a trunk and like needed to be rooted in order to like grow fruit. And like when we're talking about fruit in the metaphor, we're talking about restorative outcomes, healing, uh, relationships and um, accountability. And so the restorative process being the tree, uh, be, being the branch to get there, um, and then the trunk of the tree being proactive restorative practices that are helping to build up the um, relationships in the community, build trust. And then the roots of uh, the tree would then be uh, the mindset and the values that you have in doing this work. I don't know how well that went uh, mm -hmm. being explained without the visual, but uh, <laughs> it's on Instagram, amplify.rj, uh, if you want to look that up. <laughs> yes, and I, I can link to that in the show notes as well. Cool. Yeah, uh, I definitely recommend looking at the tree because I think it helps make a lot of sense of the concepts and why it's important to have all of these pieces. Yeah, for sure. What are ways that communities or groups can incorporate restorative justice into their daily life? Yeah, so I guess going back to the metaphor of the tree, right? It's really hard to start um, growing something from a branch, right? You can propagate a tree like from a branch, like that that happens. But um, in order for that branch to grow, like you need to have roots. So I think the the thing that I ask people to think about as they're uh, leaving an intro to RJ workshop is like, what is the mindset that you're wanting to embrace? Uh, what are the values that you have, right? That are restorative. When I think about restorative values, I think about equity, respect, compassion, um, honoring the multiple truths that people have, um, honoring our indigenous uh, ancestors and their value of interconnection. I think that's really important. This idea of interconnection uh, exists across so many uh, indigenous traditions. And I think like if we went back far enough, we could find that for each of ourselves. For me, like I'm Filipino and the word kapwa in Tagalog is this idea of togetherness, brotherhood, right? But in Babayan, the pre-colonial language of the Philippines, it's this idea of the inner self and everyone being uh, interconnected. Uh, from my African heritage, right? The word Ubuntu is uh, a word that means I am because you are. Um, and so if we have these ideas um, so closely ingrained in ourselves, um, we would treat people so different when we think about like the way that we treat them is like actually what's affecting us. Right. And so because of colonization, global capitalism, like these things have been separated from us, they've been erased or we've forgotten them intentionally. Right. In a lot mm -hmm. of ways. And so like reclaiming that, doing the work for, for yourself to find, uh, your indigenous roots and the values that your people um, had is something that I encourage people to do, but also just like having a conversation generally about values with the people that you're in community with. So like, these are our values. Cool. And then like, how are they showing up in what we do? Cause like, it's one thing to like make a value statement, but then like in practice, like, are you living up to those values? So like making community agreements. So again, like we're starting like from the base of the tree, right. And like building up from there. So like from our roots, um, building up the the capacity to to do the work um, in community, like by com creating community agreements, checking in with each other, just building relationships, uh, creating community agreements throughout about how we're going to deal with harm when uh, it happens, because it's inevitable, mm -hmm. right? People uh, together will eventually harm each other, maybe not intentionally, uh, but sometimes maybe intentionally, right? Because mm -hmm. people are going to be people. Um, but that's where I would tell people to start, right? Don't think mm -hmm. about going into like, just like, how do we solve this conflict, right? Mm -hmm. I think that's where a lot of people come at it from. And anytime 
a restorative justice practitioner comes to a community, they should be like, all right, like, what are the values? Like, what are you trying to get out of this? And is this just going to be like, oh, we solved this problem and it's over? That's never the case, right? You're going to continue to be in relationships with people. So like, what is the foundation we want to build as we are, you know, resolving this harm? Um, It doesn't exist in a vacuum, right? There's a relationship um, and maybe societal or cultural factors that are contributing to that. And so all of that needs to be addressed. But so yeah, starting at the roots, that tree metaphor is is so important. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for being here, David. I really appreciate this. And I would love if you could tell us where we can find more about Amplify RJ on the internet and what sorts of offerings you have coming up. Hopefully by the time this airs, there will be a YouTube channel with some Mm. videos. Uh, one of them breaking down the tree, um, some of them giving a little bit uh, more context to restorative justice work. Uh, but okay. everything that I have right now is on Instagram at amplify.rj. You can also find um, stuff at the website, amplifyrj.com. And then as far as offerings, like uh, Lisa Don said, this summer we are offering um Intro to RJ for educators. And this is intro to restorative and racial justice. Um, this moment that we're in is so important to center racial justice in restorative justice work and in all the work that we're doing, right? Um, I think restorative justice inherently is about racial equity. Um, and sometimes that gets lost, especially when um, white people are the ones who are presenting the work. Um, mm. So if that's something that you're looking to um, learn more about, uh, There are sessions geared specifically towards educators. And then on the weekends, we have sessions that are just open to everyone. Um, I don't know how much this applies to uh, your audience, but um, every Friday this summer, starting on Juneteenth, uh, we have free programming for the Black community, um, whether that is intro to RJ sessions, but also uh, healing circles. Um, And you can find all that information on Eventbrite or Instagram. Thanks so much to David for providing that overview of restorative justice. For everyone else, I highly recommend checking out Amplify RJ and signing up for one of their upcoming sessions. You can register for all upcoming sessions at amplifyrj.eventbrite.com, and I'll post the link in the show notes. Restorative justice is often used at a community level, in Indigenous communities and in marginalized communities who know that bringing police in can cause more harm than good. As David noted, restorative justice has its roots in Indigenous practices. The label restorative justice is what those of us who've been socialized in the punishment-based system have given to those practices. In Canada, restorative justice is an option as part of our legal system, but it's not well known in the mainstream. In New Brunswick, where I live, it's listed explicitly as an option in the juvenile system, but until recently, I didn't know it was an option for all crime. Restorative justice approaches only work if all parties truly want to address the harm that has been caused. As David discussed, without a foundation for restorative justice, or a trunk and roots, it may not cause lasting change. And ideally, restorative justice practices would take place outside the formal legal system. However, if the choices between further harming survivors, or potentially healing survivors, even an imperfect approach to restorative justice is better than the current system. I recently had the privilege of hearing a presentation by Marley Liss at ConvergeCon, an annual sex conference based in Vancouver, BC. While restorative justice practices are often used in cases involving Indigenous people, either within the settler legal system or within the Indigenous communities, it's not commonly used for settler cases for adults. Marley is one of the only adults who has used a restorative justice approach for sexual assault through the formal legal system in Canada. 
I learned from Marley that the Canadian Victims' Bill of Rights explicitly states that every victim has the right to information, quote, of the services and programs available to them as a victim, including restorative justice programs, unquote. When she learned about restorative justice as an option, she knew she wanted to do that, but she still had to fight for it. Even that decision was left up to the prosecutor. So even when trying to go through a process that added more agency, she was still not granted full agency. The process used was based on a conferencing model developed by the Maori people. Marley said she found the process of using restorative justice to be healing, and it was likely healing for the person who sexually assaulted her as well. There's a lot of preparation and therapy that needs to happen before the conferencing can happen. In particular, the person who caused harm had to be ready to take responsibility for his actions. Otherwise, further harm could have been caused. Marley's positive experience with restorative justice led her to found an organization called Rehumanize, where she seeks to advocate for restorative approaches to dealing with sexual violence. You can find her website at rehumanizemovement.com. There are tons of articles and other media about her experience on her website as well. In Indigenous cultures on Turtle Island, what we now call North America, the approach used has been peace circles. These are used for governance and also for healing. To talk about the power of circles for healing and justice, I'm excited to now welcome Mia Hunt to the podcast. Mia is a circle keeper with Hidden Water NYC, an organization that practices a restorative justice approach, specifically peace circles, to interrupt the cycle of childhood sexual abuse and the resulting harm to families, communities, and society. I'm very interested to hear Mia talk about her first-person experience, both as a participant in circle work and now as a circle keeper. Welcome, Mia. Hello. Thank you for having me. I'd love to start out for you to give us a bit of background of how you came to doing circle work and also why the work is important for you. Uh, I came to do circle work. Um, I actually was molested and subsequently raped by my uncle when I was a child. So that went up until I was around 12 years old, right before puberty. Mm. I'd gone to therapy. I actually did a few sessions with a therapist. This is the typical one-on-one therapy. And it, it was it was really helpful at the time. Mm-hmm. But I had a little too much control in those sessions. I got to control what was coming up for me pretty much. I got to control what questions were going to come up or not come up. If I didn't tell her about an event, it wasn't going to come up. Right. So I did that in maybe a few months and then thought, okay, you know what? I went to one more session and I was like, she said, I'll see you next week. And I said, no, I'm good. (laughs) And she looked at me like I was crazy. But at the time I thought, okay, I'm good. I felt a lot more validated. And so, okay, go back out into the world. That was not, um, the end of my healing mm-hmm. journey by far. It took me another, gosh, over 10 years before I really recognized that I was not okay because my coping mechanisms also serve me in my in other parts of my life. Mm-hmm. Not only was I not exhibiting the behavior, the behaviors that are quote unquote typical, which there really is none. Mm -hmm. 
right. of a person who is still being affected by the harm. Outside looking in, I was great. Inside out, I was an amazingly functional alcoholic, succeeding mm-hmm. well, presented well, kind of attractive. <laughs> <laughs> So nobody saw it. And it really took um, a friend of mine coming to me in a moment where I was completely spinning out and having an anxiety attack and saying to me, you know, I love you enough to tell you that you've been surviving for 42 years and you're doing an excellent job surviving, Mm -hmm. but I want you to live. And I signed up for Circle at Hidden Water that evening. So that's how I got there. Amazing. So you've now gone through one circle as a participant, second circle as a participant, and a junior keeper, and now you're a senior keeper. What do circles look like? Like what happens in a circle? I always preface my explanation to people um, that ask this question because I do get this question asked a lot. You really cannot get a full understanding of what circle is, how circle works, and the power of sitting in circle and holding safe space for yourself and for others. You have to be in it to really know. But Mm -hmm. with that being said, the way the circles that I participate in at Hidden Water work is that Hidden Water, they have four separate circles that are just for individuals. So you would come in as either the person who was harmed, that circle is green circle, that's my circle. Mm -hmm. There are orange circles for non-offending parents of the person that was harmed. Blue circle is for friends and family that would include spouses or brothers and sisters. Purple circle are for those who have harmed Mm -hmm. and are ready, willing, and able to not just be accountable and figure out how to deal with that shame, Mm -hmm. being that shame is the lowest form of human vibration and really no one human being can carry shame by themselves. Mm -hmm. And then get to a point where that person in that purple circle is able to sit in a multicolored circle mm. with the person if this is what the the ultimate goal would be if it could to have all the members of the family and or the small circle including that purple person sit in circle together hold space for each other mm. and for everyone to be able to speak freely from that i place And for each person in that circle to also hold and share what the other person is thinking, feeling, working through. So that purple person has to be able to sit in that space and with the shame and every other feeling that they have. Mm -hmm. And instead of closing off to it, fully taking accountability and then sitting in that space and being able to after a circle is over, if the person that they've harmed 
is going through another cycle of dealing with their harm, which we all do. It doesn't, Mm -hmm. for me, I can speak for myself. It's not a destination. It's a journey. It will always be a journey. Mm -hmm. So I do have times where I'm still triggered. I'm still falling back into my coping mechanisms or what I call my full coping self. And so I'm back to phase one of the three phases in dealing with it. And that purple person has to be able to sit with it again and again Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. again Mm -hmm. until that person doesn't have to or doesn't feel like they need to come back. Mm -hmm. So to indefinitely be in that space. Wow. And when you say the three phases, what are those three phases? So in Hidden Water, what I've learned and what we uh, speak of as keepers Mm -hmm. is that there are three phases of in the path of healing from harm. So phase one is basically the beginning. You have been harmed. The harm Mm -hmm. event has happened. In my case, the child sexual abuse has happened. Mm -hmm. So in phase one, whether you are the perpetrator or the person that is harmed, whether you are the victim of harm Mm -hmm. or the people surrounding either of those, any of those people, you're, you go through this first phase. So Mm -hmm. the first phase involves things like deny, deflect, minimize, justify, blame the victim. Mm -hmm. And it also, so along with that, all of the other things that we do to just start coping because we're human beings. So our first reaction when I talk about phase one is just survival instinct kicks in. Right. What do I need to do mentally, physically, emotionally, all of the leads to get me through this just mm-hmm. to feel for a moment that maybe I'm still a whole human being. So phase two involves you're acknowledging the impact of what has happened to you. Mm-hmm. So for me, yes, I knew it had impacted me. Mm-hmm. Um But for whatever reason, I really hadn't fully allowed myself to feel angry. And in phase two is where you have that, I call it sacred anger. I love that. Because it is not there to spin you into a negative space. For me, I've learned that I have to embrace whatever feeling I am feeling fully in that moment. There was so much of my upbringing and then just what society tells me that I'm not supposed to fully let myself be angry that there was some shame in even that. Right. Or especially adding the fact that I'm a black woman into that is that, okay, strong black woman, deal with it, swallow it. Mm-hmm. So there's lots of other things that are involved in phase two um, for those who have harmed. That's when they start taking responsibility and are feeling remorse, not guilt. Two completely separate things. Guilt is not going to do it. OK, you mm-hmm. felt guilty. Should have. When it first happened. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but the, the remorse portion of that is um, Mm. is really important yeah and in phase three and that's when you start letting go of the shame event what we refer to as a shame event in my case Mm 
it'd be the child sexual abuse, you let it go as a defining moment. Like mm. instead of feeling it, not even in a place, this is speaking about when you're in a place and you can look back and identify like, oh, that started then. That's not what I mean. Mm-hmm. What I mean is that it moves with you in your daily life and your daily spirit. You're feeling it. Anyone that's been a victim or is a survivor of child sexual abuse, sexual abuse, period, I'm sure understands what I mean by mm-hmm. somewhere in you in your daily life, just still carrying that with you somewhere mm-hmm. um, where it's so easily accessible, you feel it all the time. Mm-hmm. So in phase three, that's where you are. It's it's losing its charge. And one of the things th- that restorative justice and and the restorative circles focus on is seeing people as whole people. How do you think that part, so seeing beyond just someone who has been harmed versus someone who has caused harm, seeing all the facets of another human, how does that contribute to your healing as someone who's been harmed? For me, that's been a huge part. And I, I think that that is one of the reasons why circle for me, especially has been so healing because my abuse didn't start with me. Mm-hmm. It was generational. And so everyone involved directly with me mm-hmm. and therefore with the abuse, they didn't come into that situation clean. Right. But when you're little or when you're just looking at it, you you came into it clean. Yeah. So I'm going to assume that you also came into this situation clean and therefore I'm judging you. Right. Now, this is not, I'm not just speaking about purple here. For me, especially thinking of it that way and seeing my mother as a person, seeing her mother as a person. Mm-hmm. seeing my aunts and uncles and everyone else, the people who I've had intimate relationships with, being able to see them all as people who also had something prior to whatever brought them into my life during that event. Mm-hmm. If I can't see at all of them past where they were in that moment, how can I ever understand them or see them as whole people. And if I don't, how can I get them to understand me? For me, the understanding part of it was always something I'm reaching for, reaching for, reaching for. But then I'm also basically packaging myself to present whatever package I thought people wanted to the world. So nobody knew me. I know me. I know all of the parts that I could put in that package, but you only Mm. know what I gave you. Right. So how could my mom understand me when I didn't let her know who I was up until, what, this year? Mm -hmm. We're now finally really knowing each other as people. Wow. For my healing, that was everything. Something else that was key in that is that I never was able to, or just didn't, just look at and blame my uncle. Right. Even as a feeling, it was 
I know something wasn't right with how you grew up and I know what you saw doesn't take away from the fact that you really did not have to do that to me. And it was Mm -hmm. insanely wrong and there's no excuse for it. But I felt it from everywhere around me. And that's what happens in these when families are all in this harm circle. Yeah. You're constantly harming each other again. Mm -hmm. Every time someone avoids the conversation with me, I'm harmed. Yeah. Every time I come into a room and remember the last time you did that to me four years ago. So I'm going to have a stank attitude with you. Now I'm harming you. Mm -hmm. So those harm cycles just keep on going and building and perpetuating themselves in the family. Because it's just so unwell. Yeah. Everyone is just so unwell. And that helped me being able to see that for what it is and what it was and why I would think to myself, it's been, what, 35 years. Why is it that when my aunt casually brings up his name in a conversation around me, knowing the truth about what happened, why Mm -hmm. do I feel like a little girl all over again? Right. And why am I actively angry? Mm -hmm. It's because I'm not angry about the harm that happened 35 years ago. I'm harmed just now. Yeah. So I'm hurting right now. This is new and fresh. And all of those times, it's just harming each other over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. And with Hidden Water... What, is there situations where they're all where the people who caused harm and their family members come together in those mixed circles together? Yes. What the in a perfect world, mm-hmm. the entire family would come to Hidden Water. Mm-hmm. So all of the colors would come. They would do their individual circles first. That's important. Right. Yeah. They would do the individual circles to a point where they feel that they are ready to sit in family circle. And in family circle, each member of that family of that color, so a green person, the green person in that family would come and they Mm. would be supported as well by another green person. Okay. The orange comes from that Mm -hmm. family and another orange comes with them. So everyone is equally represented everyone is equally supported. Mm -hmm. So in the best case scenario, take mine, for instance, I would come, my parents would come, my brothers would come, my husband would come, my uncle would come. Mm -hmm. My grandma would come. (laughs) Um, So that would be the goal. Yeah. I personally don't feel that my healing has been stagnated at this point mm-hmm. just because I know almost for certain that my uncle is somewhere off living his not best life, not acknowledging <laughs> this, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> not acknowledging not. So th- in other words, there's no way I could possibly see him sitting in circle with me. Right. But when I sat in circle with that other purple person, hmm it also lifted that for me. Yeah. 
I don't know what, how it is for everyone, mm-hmm. but for me, it was, it was enough. I never felt that feeling before. That's wonderful. I'm curious what you think the benefits are for the, the people who've caused harm in the purple circle. What are the benefits or what are the, either for them or for the community that they would experience from being in circle? My perspective on that is this, and I don't know the exact wording, um, how it would be answered for Hidden Water. So I'm just speaking for myself and my experience. For people who have harmed, just being back in the circle. Because if I say to a purple person, you know what? You will never be quote unquote forgiven. Mm -hmm. And you are just a terrible person. You will always be a terrible person. You are what you did and shall be forever. And now we are going to excommunicate you from humanity. Mm -hmm. Unless they are physically in the prison system and we won't even get into how the cycle would continue within that system. Right. They're going to be out at some point. So this person who is carrying this shame, I mean, hopefully some, Mm because you got to have some, Mm -hmm. is carrying this shame all by themselves. Mm -hmm. They cannot talk about it. There is no other person that they know is talking about it that they can call. Mm -hmm. And so what is going to happen to that person? Are they going to harm themselves? Are they going to harm others? What are they going to do? Sitting in that phase one space is harming. Yeah. Yes, phase one is necessary, of course, but there's things in there. You know, so here I am. I'm out of jail. My family's around, but they won't talk to me. Or one of them will talk to me, but she can't say anything about talking to me. Right. Because the other person is going to judge me. So this is that's constant harming back and forth and harming back and forth and harming back and forth. Mm -hmm. Now, if I say if I was to say to my uncle, if he was ready, look, just sit. Sit in this space. I will hold space for you Mm -hmm. once you're capable to hold space for me. Because I cannot disconnect totally from you. Mm -hmm. And if it's a stranger, because I also have been raped later in life, Mm -hmm. even looking at it from that, just from that perspective and how I now look at the, the person who raped me, he's out there somewhere. Mm-hmm. Unhealed, shamed. Mm-hmm. I know he's not telling anybody. Mm-hmm. So, are the chances greater that he's going to reoffend in that space? Right. Wouldn't it be less of a chance for any perpetrator or person that it caused the harm? 
wouldn't it be less likely if they for them to reoffend if they're sitting in a communal space? Mm -hmm. And that's the real goal. That's the goal of hidden water. That's the Mm -hmm. my goal is to stop the cycle, whether it's in my family or outside of my family, in my small circle, my small C circle, or my big C circle. Because these people, they're they're not just going to poof, disappear off the planet. And guess what? Even if they did, they've already interacted with other human beings and affected them in some way, positive, negative, or everything in between. Right. You don't just poof, disappear, and then your history on this planet and interactions with other people goes away, too. It doesn't work Mm -hmm. that way. Mm -hmm. So what are we really doing if it's only punish? Yes. What does that do? You don't go to prison and come out decriminalized. No. Or healed in any way. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. It's not a place for healing in general. Oh, thank you so much, Mia, for sharing your story today. It was such an honor to have you speak to speak with you today and to have you on the podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. had to shorten the interview for the podcast, but Mia and I talked for almost an hour before I stopped recording, and we talked for another hour after that. It was an amazing experience for me. Throughout most of the time we talked, I felt emotional, sort of on the verge of being on the verge of tears, if that makes sense. If you're interested in hearing our full conversation, the part we recorded at least, you can find it on the website under the post for this episode at doweknowthings.com slash episodes. In the more extended version, Mia talks about the challenges of sitting in circle and how uncomfortable it can be to listen to hear, not listen to respond. She also goes into more details about being in circle and the healing power of being truly understood while being with others who have experienced abuse. We also talk about shame and addiction. I also want to note that circles must be done with care and adequate training of circle keepers in order to facilitate healing and not harm. I want to make sure that people are aware that not just anyone can run a circle and that there is a lot of preparation that goes into creating the different circles and making sure everyone is safe. But if you are someone who has experienced abuse or assault, having access to circles can be incredibly healing and a way to experience a sense of justice outside the legal system. From my perspective, it's very clear that for survivors, dealing with police and lawyers and judges for sexual assault creates more harm. If what we want is to heal the harm and to have actual justice, I think we need to look at alternative models. Restorative approaches are important for a better way forward, but I want to emphasize that these approaches require commitment and buy-in from all people involved. It is not ideal to just plunk restorative approaches down in a community where it's not already practiced. But I think we can continue to move in the direction of restorative justice, and I think we can see less harm being done at a societal level the more and more we incorporate these practices into our lives. What I am most concerned about is healing for survivors, and I do think that healing circles such as those described by Mia can be vitally important for survivors. These circles can also help heal the people who have caused harm and hopefully reduce their likelihood of causing harm in the future. If the goal is healing and reducing assaults and abuse overall, restorative approaches provide far more benefits than a punishment-based system. They provide learning and understanding for all parties, and they create the opportunity for empathy and for community. 
That's all for this episode. Next time on Do We Know Things, we'll take a break from the heaviness of talking about sexual assault and talk instead about how actor Michael Douglas took the world by storm when he declared throat cancer was caused by oral sex. I'll discuss what you need to know about human papillomavirus and whether oral sex actually does lead to cancer. If you have any feedback or peer review of this episode, I'm always excited to hear from you. You can send me a voice memo recorded on your phone or just a written email to doweknowthings at gmail.com. You can find a script for this episode with references and extra info on the website at doweknowthings.com. All music and sounds in this episode are by Jeremy Dahl. You can check him out at palebluedot.ca. Script assistance by Matt Tunnicliffe. Thanks so much to my guests, David Castro-Harris and Mia Hunt. And thanks to Julia Kaufman for transcribing the interviews. I'm Lisa Don Hamilton. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Do We Know Things, and you can email me at doweknowthings at gmail.com. Do We Know Things is released every second Monday, and you can find it anywhere you get your podcasts. Of course, I would love it if you could subscribe and rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time on Do We Know Things. <laughs>